Chapter 18. The Nameless City. So close we must almost be able to touch it, but we can see nothing. Ailsa says, she says we have to sip the potion near to the portal. My feet crunch on the grit. So here, she nods, I suppose so. I regard the small potion bottle in my hand. The milky liquid glitters like white opal in the light of the bulb strung on the wire above. I shrug and throw back my head to glug down the contents of the potion bottle. It tastes of chalk and metal, and I almost gag because it's so repulsive. Then, my hands disappear like melting snow. For a moment, everything is black, and then I stand on a windswept icy plateau. You have discovered the plateau of Leng, 3000 XP. As a minor reward, you are awarded five pounds. Level up. Congratulations, you are now level three. That means I have a hundred more skill points to spend, which is welcome, and a hundred more health and mana points. When I check, my sanity and reputation remain unchanged. It is night, and alien stars twinkle above. I don't recognise any of the constellations. Two moons stand in the sky, one the colour of a bruise and the other orange like an overripe peach. Between them they illuminate a vast expanse of virgin snow. There are lumps in the snow like a thousand covered huts. On the horizon, a range of serrated mountains form an edge to the world. They are bare rock with no vegetation growing on them at all. I see my breath coming out in billows, but I'm not cold. I remind myself I'm in a dream. I look to see Ailsa to the left of me and Lacoste to the right. Ailsa gazes round her, the dream within a dream. None of us seem to be suffering from the Arctic cold. Lacoste points ahead, the nameless city. He's right. Around a mile away is a strange city of minarets, turrets and gleaming domes that catch the baleful light of the twin moons. Miranda might be there. Let's go. We begin trudging through the white waste. After a hundred yards I glance back to see our trailer footprints is the only sign that life has ever disturbed this place. We feel a long way from anywhere, Elsa says as we walk. It's true. The humps in the snow are low granite huts now abandoned all over the plain. Mostly they're covered with snow, but in some places it's fallen off to reveal the sparkling rock beneath. I wonder when people last lived here, Lako says. Ailsa walks over to a hut that lies near our path. She brushes snow off the blocks of granite and looks through a hole where stones have collapsed. There's a remains of a fire in there, but long dead. Centuries, maybe. I'm appalled, but enthralled by this place. So this is the Plateau of Leng. As we approach the city, I see it too appears completely devoid of life. There's no sign of men or women or even any animal marks. Its roofs are untroubled by birds. It's as if the place was created and never lived in. There's no sign of normal wear and tear a human population causes to a city in roads. When we get closer, I see the walls are made of a uniform material. Great blocks of stone as white as plaster of Paris, but run through with veins of gold. Soon the snow beneath our feet is overlaying a roadway. Walking is easier now. Drifts bank the edges of the path, and soon we're among the first buildings. It's so quiet, Ailsa says. Just the sound of the wind. Lacoze keeps looking around. There's nothing alive here. I say, but this is supposed to be the location of the Palace of Azathoth. Ailsa mutters, where the warm and cold are to be found, and whatever they are. We wander among the city streets. There are no shops or taverns, even deserted ones. The whole place looks like a copy of a city, a model rather than the real thing. There are no windows or doors, even though there are the shapes of windows and doors. 
Every house and every building is made from top to bottom of this white stone run through with veins of glittering gold. Snow piles lie where they have blown on the city streets. No one has shoveled them away, and in some places, they're knee-deep. Lacoze goes to a house and taps an opaque stone window. What's the point of a window like this? Ailsa says, this city was never intended to be lived in. It's a city created in mockery of a human city by a creature that had no idea what it's like to be alive. Lacoze taps the stone window again and turns back. Weird. Look, I say, there are shapes on the walls. Yes, like bulges. Ailsa examines the closest one. They're like deformities on the sides of the houses and buildings. They look like tumours. Ailsa stands back. One of them just moved. Lacoze walks up to a bulge and prods it. It's soft. Ailsa looks horrified. Have you ever seen a butterfly or moth come out of its chrysalis? We all stand and watch as something moves within the bulge. Ailsa says the chrysalis softens in preparation for the grub to hatch. I suspect our presence is causing these things to stir. Things that have lain in gestation in these disgusting pods for aeons now awaken, stirred by our proximity. I have an intimation of danger. I, I want to find the palace of Azathoth. Let's hurry before these things come out. Ailsa nods and we continue shuffling through the snow-piled streets. Then I see lights ahead. These are the first lights I've observed in the city. Lacoze follows my gaze, then he points up. There are things falling from the sky. Like stars, Ailsa says. They're too small to be stars, I say. They look more like starfish. I watch where the rain of stars is coming from. They drop like dying fireflies. They're coming from space, and they're all landing on one area of the city. That way then, I say, let's just see what's going on. As we walk, I see Lacoze has his pistol in his hand. As we get closer, I see the stars are falling on an area that looks like a coliseum. There's no roof to the huge building, and the stars are falling within it. Ugh! Ailsa suddenly steps back. A bulge in the building to her right is swollen and the grey and gold skin is cracking. Something inside struggles to get free. Fight it? Lacoze asks. Not if we don't have to, I say. Let's get to that Colosseum thing, see what's there, and decide whether we want to fight. Lacoze nods. Seems sensible. He's agreed with me. The place must be affecting him. We double our pace, and after hurrying along streets between buildings where snow lies less thickly, we finally stand in front of the enormous Colosseum. White and gold columns go up around a hundred feet. Above, I see the stars falling within the Colosseum, but from here, I can't see exactly where they're landing. A roadway turns right around the Colosseum, and we follow it anti-clockwise until we see a large tunnel. There are carvings of bestial monstrosities all around the entire archway, vile, alien things I've no words for, but the sight of which makes me shudder, and I wish I was somewhere else. Even so, that's the way to go. Through there then, I say. But Ailsa and Lacoze are staring behind them. Things have come out of their gestation pouches and three or four of them shamble towards us. Horrid mismatches of human and insect-eyed creatures stumble down the road. Bodies of men and women walk on insect legs. Some have human heads, others have the pinches and the multifaceted eyes of spiders. Some drool as they come, the human heads lolling. One moves like an earwig. Another human body has been half-transformed into the glistening torso of a slug. What the fuck are those, Lacoze says. I hope it's a rhetorical question, because I have no idea. You observe something especially horrific. 
minus 20 sanity. The monsters move with inhuman haste hurrying towards us. More follow behind the first crowd. My hands go to my pistols, and I produce the Browning and the Walther PPK. We could fight them here, but I still want to see what's in the Colosseum, so I turn and shout, Follow me! There may be a more defensible position within here, or the Colosseum might hold even worse danger. As I run into the Colosseum, I'm astounded by what I behold. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of human bodies lying on the banked spiral paths of the Colosseum, and there's room for many thousands more. People lie with glowing starfish tightly attached over their faces. The captives shudder and struggle as if in the grip of nightmares, but they can't move while the glowing alien things pulse on their face, as if drawing nourishment from their heads. Oh my God, Ailsa says. You observe something especially horrific. Minus twenty sanity. I think we found the warm ones, I say. I guess this is where the monstrous AI gods do their research on the human brain. Lacoze is looking back at the shambling monstrosities that stumble after us, and these here are the cold ones, I'm guessing. Elsa has stopped. This is not a time to stop. Her hand is to her mouth. Her panic is getting the better of her. What the hell is going on with all these people lying here? Those things on their faces, Lacoze says grimly. The starfish things are feeding from them. That's what it looks like. Then the insect-eyed monsters come through the tunnel. Lacoze fires. On impulse, I try the banishing spell, but my pentagram has no effect here. I guess I can only banish creatures from another plane, and this is where the monstrous things belong. It still costs me twenty mana, even though it fails. Instead, I rely on my pistols. I have one in each hand, and I blaze away at the things. My pistol skill is better than it was, but still not great. I miss a lot. One of them, with the head of a walrus-like crawler, leaps at Elsa. Gelatinous suckers emerging from its body and wrapping round her. She screams and Lacoze goes to her rescue, kicking at its head. As he turns, a spider thing lunges at him, but I shoot it. You hit cold one for minus 22 health. Critical hit. You hit cold one for four times damage. 56 health. You kill cold one. 250 XP. It falls with a gasp. Out of ammunition, Lacoze produces a wicked-looking knife and jabs it repeatedly into the maggot-bodied walrus, causing pale green blood thick like pus ooze from its swollen body. With a grunt, Lacoze finishes the monster. We're temporarily clear of them, but more are coming all the time. Can we leave now? Elsa says, rubbing her hair from her face. She's bleeding. I cast a heal spell and the silver glow concentrates on her wounds, staunching the flow. She says with a smile. Stars continue to fall, and where they can't find a human host, they lie like sick jellyfish on the stone spiral pathways. As I watch, I see another human shape appear as a warm one wakes for the first time in the palace of Azathoth. The woman looks around her, terrified, while one of the fallen starfish slithers across the floor and climbs over the stricken woman's shoulder to stop her screams by covering her mouth and intruding two of its viscous limbs down her throat. Soon she's subdued and lies twitching and shuddering as the starfish feeds. I say, we've got to free these people. Ailsa says, I don't think it's as simple as that. I look around. How can we leave them to this fate? I run over and try to pull the thing off the woman. It's cold and slimy in my hand, but I see my tugging is damaging the woman. The starfish legs are rooted deep down her throat. If I pull them up, they'll rip her esophagus. Lacoze is beside me. With an unexpected kindness, he says, she's right, buddy, and you're right too. 
We've got to come back here and do something about this, but we're not equipped. More cold ones appear through the tunnel into the Colosseum. I look quickly around. There's another exit on the far side of the Colosseum. We run across the flat middle, with the struggling bodies arrayed around us on the raised disc. My exertion meter lifts up into the green. I really don't need a movement penalty now. Starfish fall looking for hosts, but for some reason they don't bother us. I guess the warm ones are already in a weakened state. They're insane when they get here. It's as if the starfish can't overcome someone who has any sanity remaining. A torrent of cold ones pours into the Colosseum. If the warm ones are food, the cold ones seem to be guards for the city, like antibodies activated by our presence. They sniffed out our alien nature and have come to snuff us out. I turn and fire both guns. I'm doing reasonable damage on them and I kill one with a shot to its vile spider head. You kill cold one, 250 XP. I manage to kill five or six and get lots of XP, so I'm climbing towards level four. I've been so absorbed in shooting the monsters, the Coes and Elsa have got some way ahead, out of sight. When I get to the far tunnel exit, more of the creatures enter. I flee up the banked spiral pathways past the struggling warm ones on their beds of stone. Then I trip. I hear the foul things coming for me. There are so many now. I turn, roll and fire away. I kill another and my wealth of PPK is out of ammunition. I duck and run along the rows behind a line of struggling warm ones and find a recess where I can reload. I'm breathing fast and my hands aren't steady. As I stand, my exertion meter drops out of the amber back into green, and finally, with both my pistols reloaded, I stand up. They see me and come shambling. I fire at bulbous things like maggots, some with the heads of grasshoppers, and some with the glittering eyes of blue bottles, some that still look like people. I get around 2,000 XP from the kills and I'll soon be levelling again, but that's not really my main concern. Elsa and Lacoze are nowhere in sight. I only hope they're safe. I know Lacoze can look after himself and that he'll protect Elsa. My priority is no longer to save these poor, stricken, warm ones. It's merely to survive. I duck down behind a row and I sense the creatures searching for me. I breathe heavily. And I hear a noise that's not like that of the creatures themselves. I hear people conversing in the terrible black speech I heard Mervyn Gerdrop talk back in Glastonbury. Then his familiar voice calls out, Stand, Reverend Cadmon. We will not hurt you. I decide to try and play the game a little longer. I might even get Soma out of him. I stand. Ah, there you are, he says. No need for pistols now, Reverend. We're all friends here. I suspect we're not. But I'll leave him to think it a bit longer. Gerdrock is flanked by four of the Brothers of Shadow. They seem to have authority of the Cold Ones that stand waiting for Gerdrock's orders. Gerdrock and his minions are no longer wearing masks, and now I see the reason for the masks. Instead of human mouths, the Brothers of Shadow display openings filled with rows of needle-sharp teeth, looking more like a species of deep-water fish than humans. This must be the price they pay for communing with the Old Ones. I've already seen the alien influence of those unspeakable deities that corrupt human flesh and produce disgusting hybrids, as if the code that represents players is mangled by the sentient AIs, spreading chaos and mutating everything they touch. Gerdrak has a chatty tone, like we're talking about cricket on the village green. Very clever of you to find your way into the chamber of the warm ones. Do you mind me asking what you're doing here? I might ask you the same question. He hisses. His glassy eyes flicker. I don't want to come over as hostile. My life might count on keeping him sweet right now. Isn't this the Palace of Azathoth? 
Mervyn Gerdrock's needle teeth glisten with his spit. This indeed is a house of our master, the Lord Azathoth, and we are his soldiers. We venture onto the earth plane to do his bidding. You mean the game plane? Gerdrock smiles. The game plane first, then through that, our influence spreads to the earth plane itself where we bring madness. Through madness our Lord may enter the world and rule it as is his right. Philby told me there were those who had cast their lot in with these alien intelligences, as if that would save them. The house of the warm ones. I see the sleepers shudder all around me as the starfish suck at their souls. Tendrils of red and yellow flash across my field of vision. I hear Dr. D's voice again in the back of my mind, but I can't make out what he's saying. I'm feeling the effects of my low sanity. I feel sick. I could do with some soma to stop me imagining shapes moving where there are no shapes and hearing voices whisper from the recesses of my mind. I slump and clutch at the stone bed of the nearest warm ones. The starfish pulses as if I've disturbed it. I straighten up. You don't have any soma, do you? I ask. In a voice like my favourite uncle's, Gerdrock says, Indeed I do. You're not looking so good, Reverend. But don't worry, we can help. Though you need to help us first. My lips are dry. I wait while he produces a bottle of Soma from his inventory. I would recognise its glow anywhere. My stomach lurches as everything in me fixates on the bottle. I'm an addict, and I know just one shot of that liquid will make me feel better. What do you want from me? My voice is unsteady. He seems glad I appear to be responding to his request. The Soma glitters in his hand like a golden snake. They know you're the Messiah, he says. Well, that's a strange one. This must be the insanity making me hear words from his mouth. I cough dryly. The Messiah, he nods, the personality test you did. I remember it. In the Miskatonic store. Surely it's not as easy as that to be a Messiah. I laugh. He frowns. Reverend Cadmon, one in ten thousand people have a special gift. They can be a conduit for the great old ones themselves. I'm frowning now. He talks like he means it, but then he's batshit crazy. He's got needle teeth for fuck's sake. Go on. Join us and be a conduit for Lord Azathoth like a superconducting metal. You are precious to us. You are special. I wipe my dry mouth with the back of my hand. Dr. D's telling me something about four watchtowers that keep them out. I don't feel special, I say. No, of course, he smiles sympathetically. His teeth are disgusting. It needs to be developed. We will coach you. We will train you. We will raise you to such a level in the game, right? And out of the game, you can be our lightning conductor. You can bring Azathoth to Earth. You can energize the eggs. The eggs. In your head, the gods are putting eggs in everyone's head. We can leap from the interweb into reality. You can be the conduit for this. I remember the eggs, and I don't want to believe a word he's saying. But where is Azathoth? Mervyn Gerdrock indicates a shower of falling starfish. These? These are Azathoth? Behind my eyes, I see glittering cascades of code. I imagined he would be huge, some interstellar being from the cold wastes of the void. My surprise must be evident because Mervyn Gerdrock says, Azathoth is everywhere. He's not just one thing. That is the failure to understand he can be in many things. This is how we infect humanity. You hear something horrific. Minus ten sanity. More code, microcode, bite code, code intruding like worms into the heads of children. I slump against the stone bed of the warm ones. My knuckles are white. I really don't need to be losing sanity this fast. Come, you need this. Mervyn Gerdrock jiggles a bottle of Soma in his hand. 
I don't want to give in to him yet. He can tell me more things, if I can only keep my head together long enough. If, if the warm ones are these, I point to the trapped people, then I guess those behind you are the cold ones. The disgusting maggots and half-beetles shuffle and click beside him, the ones with mouths groan. He regards them coldly. These? These are nothing. These are the cold ones. I remember the cold wagon going to Miranda's house. That's what the Indian woman called it. I say, so these are the players who die in the game. Mervyn Godrock nods. If we collect the player's body within hours of death, we can use the corpse. We download a digital personality into their dead brains and they play the game. Kept in freezers and animated by microcurrents, they wait here in their protective pouches until we need them to destroy intruders. So they can live again, he shrugs, not sure they live as such. Not except if you understand living in the most basic sense. I ask, do they retain any of their former personality? Mervyn Gerdrock shrugs again. This is a subject that's of no interest to him whatsoever, but I suspect they might. How else to explain the message, garbled as it was from Miranda? Then I see her. At the back of the crowd I see Miranda. I don't recognise her because of the transformation. Compared with many of the others, she is not as corrupted. I still recognise her face, but her human arms hang uselessly, and in their place are coiling limbs that resemble nothing as much as writhing mealworms. Hundreds of them protrude from her body. I meet her eyes, but there's nothing in them I can recognise. My mind reels. I stare, but I can't bear this. I can't do anything to help her right now, and I can't tolerate seeing the monstrosity she is becoming. I need to find a way to stop this process and bring her back. I won't do that here. I remember the sapphire potion will return me from the dreamlands. I take it from my inventory and knock it all back. It has a salty taste like brine. It looks like I won't be getting Soma from Gerdrock, whatever the benefit. The price was too high. Mervyn Gerdrock realises what I've done. It seems you're leaving us, Reverend Cadmon. I look and see my hands dissolving. Within seconds, I will be returned to Glastonbury. Mervyn Gerdrock says, I'll see you in Glastonbury, and there you will agree to join us. As my body vanishes in front of my eyes, I can only hope Ailsa and the Coes have taken their potions and escaped 